We're on the topic of the priesthood of every believer. And last week, we introduced this, and we looked at 1 Peter 2.9, the key verse. We're going to cite Martin Luther, and that will help us understand how profound the changes were at the time of the Reformation. But before we proceed, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for a day for us to gather together, to open up our Bibles, to think about what you've done for us, and to encourage one another in our mutual salvation. Thank you, dear Lord, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to study these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just summarize the argument here that because of 1 Peter 2.9, we know about the priesthood of every believer and what makes someone a priest is by washing of water of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, and 6. That's what makes us priests. Luther's argument was that... People in a church cannot be made priests. They're either born one by being born again, or they're not a priest. The Roman Catholic priests were made priests, therefore they're illegitimate. They were neither one before, nor are they one now. So Luther said to Rome, your priests are not priests at all, because you think you can make them that. We covered that last week. There was a verse we didn't look up. Let me reiterate, co-heirs of Christ. Luther correctly argued that Christ is the anointed one. That's what the term Christ means. That means he's the Messiah. He is the high priest whom we confess, according to the book of Hebrews. And he's anointed According to Psalm 45, 7, he's anointed with oil above his fellows. Now, a verse I didn't look up that's important that I want someone to look up is Hebrews 1, 9. And Brian has the mic. Hebrews 1, 9. Hebrews 1, 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Okay. So, Jesus is the only uniquely anointed one, that is the Messiah. But his companions, or his brethren, as we read in the Psalms, are all anointed. And we also know that from 1 John 2 where it says, see, an antichrist is a false anointed one. So in First John, the argument is, you all have an anointing from the Holy One, and so you don't need these claimants to be specially anointed. Have you heard me talk about that before? 1 John 2. All right, we're on slide four. What do priests do? Now, the rest of this teaching is going to go through seven functions of priests. And the argument is that all seven of these functions are true of all Christians. Therefore, any priesthood who claims a monopoly on any of these things is a false priesthood. I think this argument is utterly brilliant. I think this argument is utterly biblical. And I wish that evangelicals understood these things as well as Luther did 500 years ago. Things would be different and people would not be going back to Rome. Luther defines the functions of priests. Slide four. For such passages as you are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9, and... Thou hast made them a kingdom and priest, Revelation 5.10. 1 
Let me quote that. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign on the earth. So Christians are made to be priests to God. Revelation 1.6 says the same thing. Now Luther goes on. I have sufficiently treated this in other books. Mostly the functions of our priest are these. Now pay attention. We're going to go through each one of these one by one by one and judge whether this is biblical or not. And you're free to comment on any of these or all of them. Number one, to teach. Number two, to preach and proclaim the word of God. Three, to baptize. Four, to consecrate or administer the Eucharist. Five, to bind and loose sins. Six, to pray for others. Seven, no, excuse me, the first I counted as two that were one, but never mind. To pray for others, to sacrifice would be six, and to judge of all doctrine and spirits, seven. Now we shall see, my dear friends, that every one of these is utterly biblical. These are truths that I've written about myself over the last 20 years, that I've preached on, that I've talked about in seminars that we've had in the past at the previous church, on DVDs that we've made. And the sad thing that's going on, I just talked to a man on the phone yesterday who's in a church that doesn't want to practice any of this. And he's utterly frustrated. The pastor will have a Bible verse, and then he goes off and says whatever he feels like, whether it has anything to do with that verse or not. Consequently, the people in the church are not equipped. So it's the necessity to judge all doctrine and spirits. And we'll see that from Scripture. But not, they can't do it. Why? Because nobody trained them and nobody taught them the word of God. And they didn't take it on themselves to do so. This particular man told me he gets his training from our audios from Gospel of Grace. But every Christian should be trained and taught the word of God. Luther says, these are splendid and royal duties. But the first and foremost of all, on which everything else depends, is the teaching of the word of God. I totally agree with that. You, my dear friends, need to know the word of God, and you can't know it too well. You can't learn too much of it. It needs to be things that we talk about, as it says in Deuteronomy, coming in and going out in our Bible studies, in our fellowship. We should be talking about the Word of God because then, and only then, we'll be equipped to be a kingdom of priests, which God called us to be. And this can be real and it's something that can happen in the church. Slide five. So let's start with the very first and primary function of priests, who we are, male and female, we are priests to God. Luther says, the first office, that of the ministry of the word, therefore is common to all Christians. You might think, well, yeah, we know that. This is revolutionary. This changed the whole world. This shook up everything in Luther's day because it was the groundwork of the Reformation. There were people martyred in England for translating the word of God into English so the people in England could study and read it for themselves. Everyone needs the word of God to be at their fingertips. Let me read this, and then we'll look at scriptures. Luther says, this is clear from what I've already said from 1 Peter 2.9. You're a royal priesthood that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Luther says, I ask, who are these 
who are called out of darkness into marvelous light. Is it only the shorn and anointed mass? Now, when you see those terms, he's talking about the Roman priesthood. Is it not all Christians? Good question. Who is it? That priest up there swinging the incense? Is that the priest? Mumble jumbo? Supposedly turning bread into the actual body of Jesus? No. That's not a priest. Because he doesn't know the word of God with rare exceptions. A friend of mine married a gal who grew up in a Catholic family. And her family was so adamant about Rome, they demanded that if they're going to have any kind of happy marriage or relationship, they had to be married in the Catholic Church. Well, they talked it over and talked it over and finally decided to acquiesce. So they get into the meeting with the priest before the wedding, and he starts telling them his traditions. And so my friend who knows the scripture said, what about this scripture? And he quoted it. The priest goes, well, I don't know. Well, what about this scripture? Well, I don't know. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know. This man, calling himself a priest, was utterly biblically ignorant and was not equipped to teach a kindergarten Sunday school class. He's going to stand between you and God? No way. Get out of there and go fast. This is utterly wicked. If that's all he's going to do the rest of his life, he can at least learn the Bible. Oh, no. What do you need the Bible for? Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you. We're going to become Pentecostal here in a minute. Preach it, brother. Preach it. That no, I, I just have to. Can you hear me all right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I was out last week, uh, you know, sharing Christ, trying to share Christ a little bit with people, and I, I, a gal sat down next to me at the bus stop, and I started a conversation with her, and tried to move it into spiritual things, and and she, you know, said, "Well, I'm a Catholic." And I said, "Oh, well, you know," and I, I kind of asked the next question about, you know. To you, who is Jesus Christ then? You know, just by way of being interesting and interested. And um, she got mad at me. And she said, you know, I don't think you guys should be out here talking about Jesus Christ. She said, she said what we really should be doing is we should be doing a lot of good works out in the community. And I, and I tried to be nice, and I, I was, honest. I'm, my wife is here, so I'm, I, I have to, you know... But, I'm sure you're nicer than me, which is but, not a very high but, but bar. I, I, I was kind of angry, but I said, you know, how will, how will people, you know, how was the gospel spread? It was spread through the word of God. It ha- you have to use words. But this woman, as a Catholic, felt that, no, that's not, that's not a Christian's responsibility to share the word of God. Well, okay. How sad. That's exactly what Luther was talking about. And that was what held the whole world in darkness for centuries. Okay, well, let's finish this slide, and I'll get back to you, Rich. Can I just piggyback real quick? Go ahead. It's not just the Catholic Church. It's going on in the evangelical church. I mean, my mom goes to Grace Church, and they have this big serve. They don't even have a service on Sunday morning. They go out and shingle somebody's roof or give money to some place that's that's not even biblical. But what if the Hare Krishna go do something nice? Does it make them true or valid? See, there's nothing unique about doing good works. But the gospel is unique. Yeah, even atheists. Yeah, atheists do good works. All right. I just wanted to say that that's why that in countries that were influenced by Protestantism, literacy became so important. Because people like the early English translators like Wycliffe and Tyndale, exactly. they wanted the, the average plowboy to be able to read the Bible. Absolutely. And that's why the Reformation created literacy. With the printing press that was newly invented, Luther was publishing, taught, translate the scripture into German, make it possible for people to know. My dear friends, what we have that is powerful, that is life-changing, that will make us think like Christians, to bring light into our minds and our hearts is the word of God. And it should be so dear to us and so on our lips that we can fulfill 
the duty that we have as priests to God, which Luther says, quoting Peter, to declare the wonderful deeds of God. There it is. Why did God call us out of darkness into light? That we might declare the wonderful deeds of God. What are the wonderful deeds of God? Show up, give your money, turn your mind off, let us tell you everything? No. It's what God has done for us in Christ through the shedding of his blood. Yes. Yeah, I was yeah, that's exactly it. But I was you know, I was just gonna say how I studied, you know, the Bible and the Bible you know, it attests to the word of God, it attests to Jesus, but it's not, there's no, you know, the Bible itself isn't what gives us our power. It's not what, you know, it's God that teaches us. It's well, you need to know God, and then his word comes alive. True, true. So it's, it's that the glory goes to God. It's not that I can sit down and, and, and I can by myself study God's word and by myself become righteous by myself, learn God, because it's, it's truly him that calls us. It's truly him that wills and acts within us. But, he can, you know, he uses the Bible, but it's, it's not the Bible. I can't, like the Pharisees, they studied the Bible, they memorized it, probably know a lot more. Yeah, than but do. they didn't believe. Okay, here's the issue, uh, Eric, is faith. It's, okay? Yeah. Uh, the word preached to them did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in the hearers. Now, I'm quoting a Bible verse. Which one is it? Romans 10? Eric, look that up. You're the Romans expert from now on. This Eric. Right. I mean, yeah, they didn't believe it. That's true. So, I mean, and that just shows that only God can allow us to even believe it, even to understand it. Yeah, through regeneration we believe and proclaim. So, uh, as kings and priests to God, dear church, it's our job to declare the wonderful deeds of God. So, I'm claiming that our preaching should be about what God has done for us in Christ. Not what we think we're going to do for God. That is a consequence, but not a cause. That's what's wrong with evangelicalism. It's all about what we think we're going to do for God. Poor Jesus stuck out in the cold, and we got to let him in, right? All right. <laughs> Eric. Yeah, um, this isn't the passage, I don't think, that you had in mind, but it's um, ro- the one that I thought of in Romans ten sixteen. but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So the idea is that everyone who hears the gospel isn't a believer of it, and therefore it's of no avail to them. And uh, one thing that I just want to address real quickly is, you know, there was a new orthodox movement in the 20th century oh, which yeah. said that the word of God really isn't the word of God until... It comes alive by the Holy Spirit. And we want to be careful of that because what we're claiming is evangelicals and what, what is biblical is the Word of God is always the Word of God despite my inability to understand it. And it is the means by which God uses to save people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so men and women are culpable for their ignorance of it. And, uh, but it doesn't cease then to be the Word of God just because of our ignorance. So. You know, the passage I'm thinking about was in Hebrews that didn't profit them. Uh, Free cup of coffee for whoever finds that. That's a steep discount. Well, I think just what what he was saying, Eric, I think it is. Um, I think I understand what he's saying in that um, when, when Paul says, he goes, I did not get this gospel from any human being. I got it directly from God. And I understand that now because... I studied the scriptures all my life for decade after decade, and I never understood the gospel. I think that once you understand the gospel, the basic nucleus of the scriptures, then you can understand all the scriptures. But you've got to come head to head and toe to toe with what the real gospel is before you can understand all of the scriptures. Yeah, it's all grounded in the work of Christ through the gospel. Luann. 
I'm going back to Eric Fredrickson's comment about, you know, when he was street witnessing and because Romans is such a great book, but, you know, starting in uh, chapter 10 and roughly around verse 14, 15, but it says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, not who do good works. Good for you. That's a good reading. That's an astute reading. She's very astute. Yes. I would look somewhere in Hebrews 3 and 4. But right now I, I don't have time to look that up. They heard the word just as we did, but it didn't profit them. Somebody can find that. Okay, now do you understand this whole thing? Some Don't accuse me of just being Luther and teaching Luther. This is about scripture. Yes, this whole thing is an exposition. Did you find it? Yeah, it's 4.2. He, Hebrews 4.2. Hebrews 4.2. Well, see, I was in the right general vicinity. <laughs> Go ahead and read it since you found it. She wants another cup of coffee. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. All right. They just heard out here, the outer hearing... The external call, but not here, the internal call. Okay, what did we learn from 1 Peter 2.9? Number one, we're a kingdom of priests. All of us, male and female. Number two, the primary responsibility we have as priests of God is to declare the wonderful words or deeds of God who called us out of darkness into his light. So gospel preaching is our first order of business, right? There was what that passage said. Now, 2 Peter 4, 2, I'll read this one. Preach the word. There's a command from God. Preach the word. Paul's member said, we don't preach ourselves. That's a horrible topic. 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. Now it goes on to say because they don't endure sound teaching. We live in a day when sound teaching is not endured, so we need to preach it all the more. Proclaim is ex angelo. In the Greek, it means to message out, to message out the word of God. So Luther, I think, correctly and accurately teaches that all Christians must proclaim the word of God. To proclaim it, we've got to know it. For our proclamation to be of any value, we need to believe it. Does that make sense? All right. Let's go to slide six. What about the Lord's Supper? Now, why did he address this issue? Because the Bohemians had asked Luther, well, if we leave Rome, they won't give us any priests, and then we can't have church. Right? Right? Now, why would they think that? Because in Rome, the priest is everything. The people are chattel. All they are is to take up space, give money, and do work. They have no authority to correct a priest. But Luther says, oh, yes, you do. Now, in Rome, the priest does his priestly duty as defined by Rome, and he actually turns the elements into something they are not. Okay? So let me read this slide, and then we'll, we'll learn something. Quoting Luther, Christ proves the same thing a 
according to the account of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Notice he always go back to Scripture, Luther, where he says to all at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22, 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. For this he did not say only to the shorn and anointed, the Roman priesthood, else only the shorn and anointed could receive the body and blood of the Lord. Even this remembrance, says Luther, is nothing else than preaching of the word. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he says, says Luther, to proclaim the death of the Lord, he links us to 1 Peter 2.9, is to declare the wonderful deeds of God who called us from darkness into his marvelous light. For all Christians. Do you see the brilliance of this? It's amazing. Given the time frame when, when this was written, it's utterly brilliant. Yes, Peter. Um, isn't this uh, kind of a takeoff or a derivative of the hierarchical Jewish tradition where the priest Oh, yeah. Administered? They try to create a priesthood like the Jews had. The Romans did. Yeah, yeah, Roman Catholicism is trying to create a new Judaism, a temple Judaism, because they create cathedrals that sort of mimic the temple and the pomp and the circumstance and the vaulted ceilings and the, and the idols, or I mean the icons, right? Oh, yeah, look at all this. How Well, look at this. Try to make everybody in awe, whether they know the gospel or not. Stand in awe. And Luther wasn't at all in awe, and he rebuked them. And people were aghast. How could you do that? But he did. Now, here's our job. Let's believe what it says. We're to judge prophecy. Is this valid? I say it is. Do you? Anybody here think it's not valid? That do this in remembrance of me? is given to all Christians, and that all Christians who do this in remembrance of me proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and that all Christians, therefore, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I was going to just point out in that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, I don't have it right in front of me, but it does say as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and implied is that you will do this. Yes. And so it really is for all of us, just as and, you're saying here, Bob. And do is in the imperative. It's in the imperative, exactly. Yep. So, yeah, very good. So it's a command from God that we do this, and we're proclaiming something. And now Luther's maybe rightly criticized for having a overly literalistic understanding of the bread and wine in his doctrine, but if you look at all Luther, which I read, he always links the sacraments to the word of God. In other words, baptism is a proclamation of the gospel, and the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. And it's always linked to the gospel and faith. So any Lutheran who says, oh, I was baptized... And I show up and do what they say, really isn't much different than Rome. And it's certainly not truly Lutheran. Because baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible word. What does he say? I have it highlighted in red. Even this remembrance is nothing else than a preaching of the word. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Every single time you go to the Lord's table, you are preaching the word of God. If you don't believe the word of God is true, then don't come. 
Jonathan Edwards' grandfather invited all, even if they weren't yet regenerate, because he said, this is Solomon Stoddard, the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. So they had a debate about that. Now we have a, how would you say it, an illustration in what Christ did and a command in 1 Corinthians 11. So the Last Supper is for all, and it is an expression of the priesthood of every believer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This isn't a dead ordinance. This is the living word of God and a proclamation of the gospel. Yes. Not sure if this this is significant in Luke. Um, On the road to Emmaus, here they spent the entire day with him and they didn't even recognize him until he, their eyes were opened and they recognized him after he broke bread. I'm trying to read this here. Yes. He took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he gave it to them and their eyes were open, and then they recognized him. There you go. More copies. Three three I think, one you know day. what, I think we're going to have to start another pod. <laughs> so many good readings over here. The Gretsch family is knocking it out of the park today. Now, uh, let me be real practical here. Whether or not you agree with Solomon Stoddard I think there's something I've seen that's seriously wrong in some cases people are forbidden to go to the Lord's table or to be baptized until they prove they're good enough oh yes and even evangelical churches do this they'll say We don't think you're good enough. You still have, let's say you have some marriage problems or you're, uh, you know, you lost your job and you're not able to pay your bills and you're a troubled person and you're somebody they would send to the counselor. I have interviewed people who were forbidden to be baptized or go to the Lord's table because the pastor or somebody said, you're not good enough. Now, I'll tell you what that proves. Total misunderstanding of what means of grace are. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible word. And if God's ordained these things to change us and to inform our minds of the wonderful deeds of God, by restricting this, and not allowing people access to it until they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps is false because it's got the cart before the horse. The fact is, without a work of grace, we'll never be good enough. And if God has received us into his body, we are to receive one another. And not look around and say, You're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Do you see the problem with that? Come in the name of the Lord. Yes, Dan? I was just going to say, now the Lord's table in the Catholic Church should not even be called that, correct? Because it's it's an abomination. Basically, they're, they're... they're re-sacrificing Christ and oh yeah, the, asking. yeah so it, that's all in Luther. By the way, I didn't put everything on the slide. Right. He talked about the mass, and I think he used that word abomination. Yeah. So, I guess that's to be clear on that is it's not even um, valid to even think that that the Lord's table doesn't even exist in the Catholic system. No, not as we no, know it. Not as we know it, right? Yes. Introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Eric Fredrickson. We've got a lot of Erics here. Eric, <laughs> Eric, So Eric. many. Um, I have a question, actually. I've been in a lot of evangelical churches where they will say we practice open communion. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to partake. Yeah, that's right. So there's nothing wrong with that. Really. No. In other words, that's saying, you know, you have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, but they're not asking about, you know, do you have... They're not doing yeah. a... Right. Uh, 
investigation whether right. they think you're good enough. So you would agree with that? Any, yes, you know, I agree uh, with uh, it. Yeah. Okay, we good. do that. We do that. I, I was just noticing in First Corinthians, the verse after 26, First Corinthians uh, 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, let me comment on that. It doesn't, it's an <laughs> adverb there, and it doesn't mean, that's a good translation, it doesn't mean the person's unworthy. It means they have an unworthy attitude toward this and they're also judging the body in other words i'm a wealthy christian this is my table the poor people can just stay outside literally what's going on so they don't understand what this is well let's go to more proof of the priesthood of every believer slide seven if you're following along paul confirms this in 1 corinthians 14 26, as he speaks not to the shorn, that would be the priests of Rome, or to a few, but to the whole church and each individual Christian. Each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And further on, quote, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged, 1 Corinthians 14.31. Very, very good that he sees these verses. For I say say what is meant by each one of you and by all. Can this mean only the shorn? These passages very strongly and clearly corroborate that the ministry of the word is the highest office in the church, that it is unique and belongs to all who are Christians, not only by right, but by command. Eric, uh, this Eric. Yes. Uh, well, as, as you were just reading, each one has an interpretation. Each one should speak, you know. And, and I was thinking, so I, I didn't I didn't. Point to Mike more the, uh, the uh the gist of what I was saying through. So um, the first commandment or the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Yes. And as it's, you know, God is love and through him we can then love. So as just to diligently study the word doesn't necessarily glorify God but us, but if we realize and acknowledge that, yes, studying the word is a desire from God, from Jesus, and that understanding is from Jesus, and that we have the mind of Christ, and then we go to Christ, and we acknowledge, you know, that it's you that teaches me, Lord. It's you that shows me this. Will you show me this today? Will you? And we don't arrogantly study it and think that I myself am learning it, but I acknowledge that, yes, in all my ways, you know, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Well, I mean, that's all true, but I'd be very cautious about assuming the study of Christian, of the Bible is motivated by arrogance. I don't know that that's true. As a matter of fact, the arrogant assume they don't need God or his word. They're, they're, they're happy to go about their own thing. I think it humbles us to study the word of God because it tells us how wicked and sinful we are and how unworthy we are and how we'll never, ever please God but by the blood atonement. Okay? Uh, now, I'm not criticizing you, but it's that argument is put out there by neo-Orthodox. And in seminary, I heard that. If you, in other words, they'd teach us, and if Eric and I would say, no, 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 here's what the Bible say, they'd say, well, you're full of pride, and we're humble. And so we're always we're fighting that. I'm not criticizing you, Eric. I'm just reacting to what I got in seminary. And so we had, Eric and I, had to keep studying the Bible despite the fact we came under accusation from the leaders at the seminary who accused us of being prideful because we were able to correct them from the Scripture. 
Who was next? I don't know. Right I over guess. there. Back to Tom, too, after. You want, oh, okay. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm, is this on? I'm yeah. Barb Fredrickson. I'm Barb. Eric. Eric and Barb. Yeah, and I was just, uh, on this topic, um, we were going to another church, and I still speak to people who go there, and they're, a friend of mine is her women's Bible study is studying a book um, by Scott McKnight. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But um, so I did a little research on it. It's called The Jesus Creed or something like that. But he talks, besides praising mystic type teachers like Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, people like that, he also um, refers to people who study the Bible, like probably we here in this room, as bibliolaters. Yeah, they, did you hear that? In other words, the Bibles are idle. Now, don't be scared away. Um, when I became a Christian in 1971, and I opened up the Bible, and somebody said, well, why don't you read the Gospel of John? I started in Genesis, but I was having tough sledding. <laughs> and so somebody said, read the Gospel of John. And I started reading it, and it was so exciting to me that now the difference was now I believed all these things really happened. There really was a Jesus and miracles and the disciples and so on. Tom. Uh, in today, the way that um, we talk about uh, speaking in tongues, prophesying, which you see a lot in the emergent church today, can you just um, maybe give a little bit more interpretation as to what it says in there? Each one of you has a hymn, lesson, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Yeah, there's a number of uh, uh, theories about what that means. But Paul's overriding concern in 1 Corinthians 14 was that the word of God proclaimed in the gathering of the congregation would be done in languages that all the people understood. Okay? Somebody can speak in a foreign tongue. Whether you consider that a supernatural gifting, that they can speak in a tongue, or that they knew of some language nobody else knew. Either way, it would not edify the hearers. Does that make sense? And so when he said that we, like, look at a revelation. Does it mean a new revelation? No. That term is used in Ephesians for the revelation of the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to your bibliolatry comment, because again, that was leveled against Bob and I, and Really what it is, it's a postmodern idea that you don't have access to truth. So if you and I study the scriptures, we're being modernists claiming that we can actually know. But what they're doing is they're guising their unbelief in postmodernity saying, well, we really can't know God. And therefore, we'll get into mysticism because if you can't know God cognitively, the only way to God is to feel him. But remember in Romans 8, we're to live by faith, not by sight. And so it's, and the other thing I'd mention is, so associated is God with his word because it's his promises. Malachi 3, 6, he's a God who cannot lie. Isaiah 55, his word goes out and it accomplishes its purpose. We can't divorce God from his word. Jesus Christ is called the word incarnate. Yeah. So, so associated with God is his word that to deny his word or to say that we're um, somehow bibliolatrists because we worship his, you know, God through his word, it's the means by which we know him. And I would just point out with the Pharisees, the Pharisees did not know their doctrine. Um, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, it says in Romans 10. And so their problem was their doctrine was wrong. They were horrible interpreters of the scriptures. That was their problem. Because they followed their tradition and invalidated e the word. Exactly, and see, Mark also, 7. Eric, as you probably know, there's times like in the book of Hebrews yeah. where the word of God is quoted and it said, God said. Exactly. In this scripture. Okay. Yeah, amen. We'll okay, see. so let's summarize here. We, from 1 Corinthians 14, all may prophesy. That's what we're doing. You may all prophesy one by one, let the others judge. And we might disagree on this or that. That's okay. It's part of the deal. Okay? We're not going to have a prelate stand up and say, the only true thing is what I determine. We're not going to do that. 
We're going to have the mic available for all, and we can admonish, encourage, have a psalm, have a word of encouragement from God. Let's get to another slide here. Slide eight. Baptism. Quoting Luther. Now, this is a big deal for Lutherans. He says, quote, whether they wish or not, we deduce from their own logic that all Christians, and they alone, even women, are priests without tonsure and Episcopal character. For in baptizing, we proffer the life-giving word of God. Notice what he says there. So I think some modern Lutheranism doesn't quite get this correctly. Because they just say, well, I was baptized as an infant, so I must be a Christian. But notice what Luther says. For in baptizing, we proffer or offer the life-giving word of God. And I've seen Luther say that baptism is the visible gospel, washing by regeneration of the word. Whether that means I'm, I'm going to be Luther, no, it's not. But I can commend this statement. I believe when people are baptized, there's a visible gospel there. A confession of Christ. A burial of the old man. And a coming alive. Coming out new. Remembering Christ's work of grace. Mr. Bryan. Although he's not quite going there, he's real close to making it a salvific issue. Well, you know, so does the book of Acts. In the book of Acts... When people believed they were baptized. And let me give you a little example of what I said earlier. It got so bad in the early church that they'd make people be catechumai. Is that the right word? Whatever. It's Latin, right? Yeah, so I try to make it plural. A-E. What's plural in Latin? Whatever. I don't know Latin. But the catechumen... Let's do that. There were times that they had to sit there for three years afflicting their souls, hoping that they'd be considered worthy to be baptized. And they had to go through rigorous programs of self-denial and training before they were deemed worthy to be baptized. Now, why do we reject that? I reject that out of hand. If you read Acts, it's not biblical. Let me give you an example. In Acts 8, which we haven't got to yet, but we will, Simon Magus, who was this sorcerer called the mighty work of God, you know, he was making himself out to be great, it said he believed and was baptized. Then not soon after that, the apostles came down from Jerusalem, laid hands on them, and there was this manifestation of, of some, something that caused people to probably speak forth the mighty deeds of God. That's what they did in Acts 2. Simon Magus was so impressed, he said... Let me buy this, and I can add it to my magic act and think of all the money I could make. And what did Peter say to Simon? Your money can perish with you. Your money can perish with you. Because you're not right with God. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Now, they didn't fear baptizing somebody who was not really a Christian. But they did deal with it on the back end through church discipline. So if somebody comes and they say, I believe the gospel and I want to serve Christ, 
and I want to be baptized, the biblical pattern is to baptize them. If later they want to buy the Holy Spirit, they're out. There was no fear of baptizing the wrong people. They didn't sit around and wait for years to see who was good enough. Do you see the pattern? I think evangelicalism is becoming more like monastic Rome. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. For in baptizing, we proffer the life-giving word of God, which renews souls and redeems from death and sins. Says Luther, to baptize is incomparably greater than to consecrate bread and wine. For it is the greatest office in the church, the proclamation of the word of God. Notice that? There's that Lutheran doctrine of baptism I can agree with. And he pointed out in some of the material I don't have on slide that even Rome would say in a crisis a woman could do it, could baptize somebody. Let's say they were dying and only a woman was around that was a believer. And so Luther argued, well, you admit that, so you don't have to be a priest, so any believer can baptize. And that's the most important function, and it's for all. It's not who baptized you, it's your faith in Christ. And he comments on that. Slide 9. Says Luther, unmoved by their senselessness, we hold that this function too, like the priesthood, belongs to all. And this we assert, not on our own authority, but that of Christ, who at the Last Supper said, do this in remembrance of me. This is the word by means of which the shorn papists claim they can make priests and give them the authority to consecrate. Again, talking about the Roman priesthood consecrating the elements. In red on my slide. But Christ spoke this word to all those then present and to those who in the future would be at the table to eat this bread and drink this cup. So it follows that what is given here is given to all. There it is. It's given to all. Dear friends, let's think biblically. Who said, do this? Jesus. Who reiterated? Paul. To whom? To the church. So we can all come. And it doesn't matter who distributes the bread and the wine. Yes, Tom. This is just uh, a question or an observation. As we look at, I was raised Catholic. I think I've said this before. And uh, 10 years of Catholic training, altar boy, Latin, all that stuff, and uh, never opened the Bible uh, during that period of time. Uh, but it's a very strong pull, you know, to separate the people that are the Catholics from, you know, the rest of the world. It's very, very strong uh, to be able to do that and break away. But do you feel that there is there was the Protestant Reformation, and then you had the uh, Jesuits who who really became the militaristic for the Catholics, and then in turn they um, uh, you know really um, came in there and and they had the Inquisition and all that type of stuff stuff. But now I see a massive movement towards a Counter Reformation by the Catholic Church. In fact, Pope Francis is going to be talking to the United Nations on the 25th of September. This whole thing is going to be on social justice, environmentalism, and pushing really everybody back to the Catholic faith and ecumenicalism. Uh, do you feel that we're in a huge counter-reformation movement right now by the Catholic Church? Well, being how the Pope is a left-wing socialist. And not only that, he's a Jesuit, right. the first so Jesuit Pope. So he fits Pope. in with the President of the United States. And that's where things are going. I Worshiping so and serving the creature rather than the creator. All right? 
And this, that's where things are at. Let me do a little more Luther. We have maybe not even a minute. But let me, I'm going to quote something you don't have on your, see my notes here? Luther also said this. The third function is to consecrate or administer the sacred bread and wine. Here those in the order of the shorn, okay, the authorities of Rome, vaunt themselves and set themselves up as rulers of a power given neither to angels nor the virgin mother. Interesting. Dot, dot, dot. Those who oppose this have no foundation on which to stand. In other words, Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Those who oppose this have no foundation on which to stand. Here, except, now here's the authority of Rome. The fathers, the councils, tradition, and the strongest article of their faith, namely, we are many, and thus we hold, therefore it's true. Look at how many of us there are. Look at how far and wide the doctrine of Rome has gone. Look at how many Catholics there are. Could they all be wrong? Know this. I'm not saying every Catholic you know is a bad person or an evil citizen. Because that's not true and you know it's not. I am saying this. The individual Catholic who shows up has no power, no authority, and nothing to say. And we'll talk to Dan, who was strongly in Rome and left. Go ahead, Dan. Right. I'll just quickly say it's... I think all of us have to be ready, you know, especially with the Pope coming into the... This is a huge thing for the Catholics that the Pope's coming to the United States. But the issue is authority, is who yep. are we going to listen to? Is it the Word of God, or is it going to be, uh, you know, sola scriptura versus sola ecclesia, ecclesiastical, whatever that... Uh, where it's church worship, basically, versus the authority of Scripture. And yep. that's where we have to... To understand, they'll always come at you. Oh, where is that in Scripture that you were supposed to look at Scripture alone? And I know I've I've asked you that question before, and you've you've you know maybe you could maybe address that real quickly as far well, as how do we Jude, address that? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Where do we have that? But in Scripture, and it says once for all. It means once and never again. Hopox, yes. Um, Dan and I have that in common, although I wasn't an altar boy. For some reason, I rejected that. But um, one thing I, I know in Catholicism, and maybe, Dan, you can speak to this too, is I viewed the sacraments as kind of like merit badges <laughs> in Boy Scouts in the sense that it was like a hired order degree of Catholicism. In participating in those sacraments, I never really associated the sacraments being linked to the proclamation of the gospel. And that's been huge, obviously, at, at TCF and GGF, uh, I think, for a lot of Catholics to come to the knowledge of the understanding and then also to see the co-opting of the church, the one true church, as they call it, uh, the co-opting of Christ's authority and usurping that as they and substituting the their own. Well, that's what Luther was complaining back 500 years ago. We are ancient. We are many. We have councils. We have traditions. So we must be right. And you're going to hear that same argument today. How many popes have there been? I'm the pope. I must be right. And Luther was saying, no. Any member, 1 Corinthians 14, can judge prophecy. And if someone prophesies incorrectly, meaning speak out for God, he can be told or she can be told by anybody, you must be silent. And he says the Pope doesn't preach the gospel. He prophesies falsely. So anyone in the church can say to the Pope, be silent in the church. What? Yep. 
we've, when we've asked, oftentimes here, either at Gospel of Grace or back at TCF, over half of our members are ex-Catholic. And it's always been the case. They're people who have who fled to the gospel. And who's going to keep the gospel away from you? Because it's given by Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us the gospel and pure word of God. May we not be arrogant but humbled that you would allow us to look into things that even angels desire to see. May we be full of hope and grace. And may we, with love, share the truth so others can hear and learn. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.